Welcome to Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, Joe Weisberg, the creator of The Americans, on what we get wrong about Russia. Are you joining the CIA so that you can write stories about it later? And I wasn't joining the CIA for that reason, but once they asked the question, I was my brain was like, uh, huh, I probably will get a lot of good material here. <laughs> I assumed that, like me, everyone was there because they wanted to be James Bond or George Smiley, and kind of one by one, the light went out of our eyes as we saw what it really was. Joe Weisberg, welcome to Chatter. Thanks, Shane. It's great to be here with you. Um, so most people listening to this podcast will know you as the creator of The Americans. Uh, and if they're listening to this podcast, it probably was one of their favorite shows uh, in recent years. Some of them may know that you worked for the CIA for a few years earlier in your career. I suspect very few of them will know that you're a lifelong student of Russia. Uh, at one point in your book, you described yourself in college as a junior Sovietologist. Um, so you write about this in the book, but tell us a bit about how it is that you became interested in the Soviet Union. Where did that start for you and in Russia? It's a, uh, it's a long story that I could tell in a lot of different ways. So I'll try to keep it short and give you some highlights that, uh, you know, starting when I was really pretty young, my father read a lot of great Russian literature aloud to my brother and myself. I mean, even when we were like 11 and 12, he was reading us Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. And I got a kind of fascination with the culture at that point. And by the time I went to college, I had really developed into a, a, a cold warrior, a pretty, a pretty serious one who uh, uh, was aligned with Ronald Reagan on the Soviet Union and thought it was an evil empire and decided that I wanted to learn more about that in a way so that I could play a role so that I could do something, so that in this grand arena th that I was so passionate about, I could I could find myself. And so I started taking a lot of courses in Soviet and Russian history and uh, just really immersing myself in that. And it was kind of a, you know, a passion that that never went away and is absolutely what led me into the CIA, which is, of course, eventually what led to the Americans. You write that your parents were politically active when you were growing up in Chicago. I mean, did you feel compelled at a young age to engage in politics because it was something that, you know, you saw the adults around you caring about and, and engaging in? Yeah. In my family, you know, I have a brother who's just a little bit older and my parents were, if people in Chicago know the phrase lakefront liberals, people who lived along the uh -huh. lakefront and, and were opposed generally to the original Mayor Daley and wanted to have better government in Chicago. And so my parents were like that. And there were always people coming over for coffee and cheese to talk about the latest aldermanic campaign. And my brother, uh, Jacob, at a very young age, was essentially like one of them. So, you know, when I was nine and he was 10, he would sit there in those coffees and talk about the aldermen and he would go, he would go out campaigning during the elections and things like that. And I was very much on the outside of that. I thought it was all incredibly boring and I wanted to watch TV shows. And on occasion, when my parents and my brother took over the TV, for example, to watch the Watergate hearings, I was crushed and mm -hmm. aghast. Uh, but in line with your question, I think there was another part of me that felt I need to find my way into this. And that really was my way into politics, was to start caring about foreign policy in the Soviet Union. Yeah. Do you remember being, as a child, being frightened of the Soviet Union? Did it loom as sort of this menacing kind of force? A lot of people from my generation, I can't see you well enough on the video, but I'm guessing you're at least close to my generation. 45. Yeah, so close. Yeah, okay. So I'm, I'm about a decade older. So, you know, at least around that era, 
they, there seems to be a split because I talked to a, a lot of people and some really, you know, they did those drills getting under their desks in case of nuclear attack. And they really had a part of them that was terrified that was coming. And then there, there's another cohort, which I'm a member of, that did not fear it that directly in that way. For some reason, even though we did those same drills and heard all the same things and knew, watched the same movies, knew about the nuclear menace, it just didn't penetrate in a way that we felt exactly afraid. But I did consider them to be a malevolent force in the world. And I felt that communism and Soviet totalitarianism could take over the world and in some vastly theoretical way, maybe spread to America. So it was it was more in, in the political kind of sense rather than the, you know, as I remember it, like Red Dawn kind of uh, <clears throat> analogy where they're going to be parachuting into your backyard and you're, we're going to have to all go join the resistance and run off into the wilderness. Yeah, that's right. You know, I would almost describe it as a, a fear that I didn't actually feel. Right. It was a fear that I wanted to have because it motivated me and gave me something to care about and was fun to talk about. And I could argue a lot. But in my bones, I wasn't really afraid. You know, when, when Red Dawn came out, that was a that was a great, interesting moment uh, for me and probably for a lot of people who were kind of following that topic, because there was a real debate. A lot of people were like, this is very inflammatory and silly. And of course, the Soviets would never invade the United States. That's not realistic. And I just loved getting on my high horse and saying to everybody, hey, they did a version of this in Eastern Europe. So even if they're not going to do it here, it is the kind of thing they do. Right. I remember seeing it. I must have been, I think I was probably about nine years old when it came out. And weirdly, I saw it in the movie theater in Philadelphia when we were on a summer vacation with my family, which is only remarkable because the crowd was actually cheering every time they shot a Russian. Um, but I remember thinking <laughs> right. that it was, I didn't have enough knowledge to know that this was a fantastical scenario. And it was not long before that, even I think that um, uh, the day after had premiered on ABC, which of course, you know, seeing that my parents actually wanted me to watch this as an event. And it was horrifying. I mean, it's a film where people are just getting evaporated in these scenes of nuclear winter. So for me, it was much more visceral. But I think that was because I was young and didn't have any historical context to put it in. Whereas like you were immersed in that kind of context, it seems from a fairly early age, but then, you know, educated yourself about it. Yeah, I, I was. And, and I think it was almost like the the fun version of, of the day after. Right? The day after was just all horror. But in Red Dawn, if you were a, you know, healthy adolescent American male, you actually, or at least speaking for myself, I wanted that to happen. It's not that I wanted the Soviets to invade. What I wanted was to drop out of high school and become part of a rebellion and shoot people. That <laughs> that seemed incredibly fun. Yeah, I, could, I, I felt the same. Um, <laughs> so your book is called Russia Upside Down, an Exit Strategy for the Second Cold War. Um, Talk a little bit about that title and what you what you see as a second Cold War, because I know this analogy, people use this a lot and debate this question. Are we in another Cold War? Are we not? Why do you land on the side that says that we are? I think that the first of all, I can't argue the language that passionately because I don't care that much if it's called a second Cold War or not. But what I do care about is that we recognize that the conflict has returned and it is returned in serious and dangerous form. And it doesn't matter if it's as dangerous as the initial Cold War. It just matters that it's not good and we're, we're in a lot of trouble and they're in a lot of trouble. And also I would say that it's, it's not exactly necessary. So I end up choosing to call it a second Cold War because 
I think that's true enough and, and easy to understand. And also, it is a repeat. It is a repeat of what went on with the Soviet Union in terms of our mentality and our need to have an enemy and our very one-sided, one-dimensional view of that enemy. Yeah, and you write a lot in the book about the kind of the binary nature in which the cold first Cold War was framed. And I thought it was very interesting, too, of, of relating that to your own kind of, as you describe it, binary way of thinking about the world when you're younger, which you know changes and becomes more nuanced as you get older. Um, so you do see that we're sort of locked in that same kind of us versus them, black versus white kind of you know mentality this time around, too. Why, why don't you think we learned anything the first time? It's a good question. In a way, the book is a telling the story of how I broke out of that binary way of thinking so that it looks different to me this time. And I'm very torn in the book about whether or not I'm you know, being prescriptive. I can't avoid a certain element of, I broke out of this, I see it more multidimensionally, and that's better, and that is what you should do too. So certainly that that's that's in the book. But I also don't like being proselytizing or preachy or assuming that I have everything right by any means. So I prefer to sort of tell it as, as my own story. And, you know, roughly speaking, when I was younger, I mean, back to Red Dawn, our entire culture bombarded us with messages about the evil totalitarian Soviet empire and did not bombard us with messages about its complexity or parts of it that were good or explain not only did it not explain why some Soviet citizens, many Soviet citizens supported their system, it essentially pretended that they didn't. And so, first of all, the information coming in was very binary. And then for my own, you know, psychological reasons, I mean, this gets very uh, complex. I, you know, I write about it in terms of things I discovered about myself in therapy. But one of the things I sort of uncovered in therapy was that in my home, I was in a sense censored because there wasn't really a lot of room for emotional conversation or bad feelings or things like that. And so I, I unconsciously had to keep a lot of that to myself. And I think that led me to have an unconscious identification with people over there who were directly censored by their government, just like I was by my parents. Now, that was not, a again, a connection I made on any level when it was happening. And as I also point out in the book, that's a story I tell myself. That's not a fact. That's one way of interpreting and and understanding my my own life. But if you put together that external, what was coming in from the culture, which, which with what was coming up for me internally, I it was very attractive and appealing to see things in black and white terms. They were bad. We were good. By the way, if we were good, I was mm-hmm. good. So it all felt right to me. And I think that you know, through a process of examining all of that and, and thinking through it, and being ex- also after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was there was more in our culture about the complexity of it. Academics were discovering all sorts of things in the archives and writing very complex things about the former Soviet Union, and it just all started to seep in and give me a more complicated view. But it seems to me that if you look at Russia today and our political leaders and the general feelings about Russia, they are still stuck in that they're bad, we're good. Yeah, and it's because, I think part of it, too, is that we feel triumphant from the first Cold War. Um, you know, I can remember, well, tell me, when, when the wall came down and when the Soviet Union finally fell, what do you remember about that moment? And probably you were seeing this unfold on television, but did it feel triumphant to you? Absolutely. I mean, the, you know, the wall... They were two different things. In in a way, the wall felt triumphant. That felt like 
we had liberated these people, these good people by us who would now get to be free. It was more complicated when the Soviet Union collapsed because at that point I had joined the CIA and I had joined it to fight the Soviet empire and I was very ambivalent about it disappearing. <laughs> what was I going to do What's now? What's the job and now? By the way, the whole organization had that identity struggle. What was it like inside the CIA at that time when it came? I mean, people, I mean, that talk about an amazing place to witness uh, the end of an era. It, it was confusing, you know, on a very, on a very practical level there, you know, I'm, I can be very critical of the CIA. It also has some real strengths as, as a bureaucracy and organization. And one of them is it does tend to confront things head on and openly. And so, you know, the fact that the organization needed to find something new to do was, you know, taken on openly and in, and in cable traffic and in memos to the staff and in conversations and every, and everything else, the sort of long period of finding that new mission was like being in a no man's land. I mean, I think people who had spent their whole careers there under, as opposed to me, who had just joined were, were a little bit lost. Um, but you know, specifically I spent a few months doing, uh, I was really in training almost the whole time I was there. I left before going on my first assignment abroad, but I did manage to do these sort of short interim assignments in a lot of different parts of the agency and, and get a feel for it in different ways. And I did one in the area that was responsible for the Soviet Union and, and Eastern Europe. And there it was, it was really interesting right before the fall. I never forgot this, uh, this moment when I was sort of walking around the hallways and heard these high ranking officers from this Soviet division, you know, talking about how can we finish off the KGB? It's starting to fall apart. They're in a lot of trouble. What do we do to sort of deal the death blow? And, and they didn't agree. Right. There, there were those who thought we should be very active trying to do whatever we could, which, you know, probably largely meant just trying to get more of them to defect. Uh, and there were those who were nervous and thought, let's just leave this alone. It's it's collapsing on its own. Let's kind of stay out of it. And did you associate yourself with one side or the other in that? I, I think that I probably was kind of in a juvenile way drawn to the uh, let's do something. Let's do something. That's what we're here for. I mean, in retrospect, I identify with the other side, but at the time. Yeah. Right. Well, and you're in this bureaucracy that is there to do something, right? So you kind of want to be on the side of the right. action, I guess. Uh, what, what motivated you to join the agency in the first place? How did you go through that process? I, um, you know, I was sitting in a, I was working in a job in Chicago as a refugee counselor, helping resettle Soviet emigres to the, to the United States. And and I was, you know, it was a hard job and I was kind of bored and I was sitting behind a desk all day and I didn't really like it. And I had from my youth and also probably up until then, a head full of John Le Carre novels and kind of the misapprehension that many have, although John Le Carre did not have this misapprehension, but many readers do, that that was the real world of espionage. And it was enormously appealing to me, you know, the idea of, sort of being somebody like George Smiley, who, by the way, if you read the books, you're like, that doesn't seem appealing, but it was to me. Right. He was like a sort of a lonely, isolated guy who got to be the mastermind of these enormously complex affairs that would then presumably affect the future of the human race. That was everything that I sort of wanted to be, you know, because I, I clearly wasn't going to be part of a high school rebellion 
with, you know, weapons. So as a second choice, George Smiley seemed, seemed pretty good. Again, I'm not saying that was all conscious, but I wasn't hundred percent unaware of it either. And I just decided, you know what, this is sort of a fantasy I had as a kid, but I've been brought up in a way not to be ashamed of my fantasies, but to think of them as things you can pursue if you want to. I'm going to, I'm going to call the CIA and get a job application and I'm going to go fight the cold war. And was it just that simple of you kind of, you call them up and you apply? It really was. It was very bureaucratic. First of all, I didn't even particularly think they'd be listed. Mm. So when I saw they were listed, I was happy. And then they sent me a very long job application and the and the process of interviews and tests and polygraphs. And it, it goes on forever. I mean, like I might have been two years. So it's unusually th- security clearance. I mean, that's a really long one. So it's a little bit different from a it's even more intense than a regular bureaucracy but very similar. Did your parents' political activity cause any problems in trying to get a security clearance? I don't, uh, you know, you never really know for sure what's going on with this security clearance because they don't, they just tell you if you passed or not. Uh, I would be willing to bet that my parents' sort of political liberalism was not a problem and not even interesting to the, to the people doing the security clearance. I generally had the feeling that the kind of claims at the CIA that it is an organization that is somewhere between apolitical and trying to be apolitical uh, were true. Uh, that 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 always felt true to me. You know, the the more surprising thing about the security clearance uh, for me was that it was relatively liberal on, for example, uh, casual drug use. You know, most of the people I know who uh, worked there of my generation had dabbled in recreational drugs, and they didn't seem to care as long as it was a little bit in your past. Right. They didn't want to hear that you had stopped using recreational drugs two weeks before your security clearance started. But if you had it a little bit in the past, that was that was fine. They didn't want to limit who they could employ uh, too much by being strict about those things. How did as, as a new officer at the agency, how did that life and your experience there shape up against the image you had in your head from reading spy novels and watching movies? My favorite story about that is that. Um, you, you join in a class of people who you're going to go through the, the training program with. And literally the first thing that happens is they gather your class into a conference room and for six weeks give you lectures on the organizational structure of the CIA. And it, it, it's like a, it's like you think it's almost a joke. It, it's like a, it's like if somebody wanted to do a parody of a bureaucracy and kind of every one of us, I assume that like me, everyone was there because they wanted to be James Bond or George Smiley, or they didn't know which it would be or how those two would combine, but it was yeah. somewhere in that zone. And kind of one by one, the light went out of our eyes as we saw what it really was. <laughs> You'd basically just joined like, you know, Exxon, or right. a large company. <laughs> right. Now, in all fairness, I think aware that they were doing that to us, the next segment of the training was the paramilitary training. So they tried to sort of get you back on board, but I think it was too late. Right. And I'm curious, to, I mean, growing up reading books about intelligence, that, that it seemed your first instinct was that you wanted to go work in that world rather than write books about it. I mean, did you entertain the idea when you came in of maybe one day I'll write about this or did, did your realization of being a writer come later? I I had thought of myself really as a writer from a very young age. I mean, I, I started writing short stories and whatnot pretty seriously when I was 12. So I always mm. thought, I, I am a writer, I will be a writer, I want to be a writer. But that was not uh, 
that really wasn't in my mind about the CIA. I really wanted to do that for pure, uh, pure desiring to be a spy reasons. And, uh, you know, when you do the, the polygraph exam, it's very interesting how the polygraph works. It's different from what you probably tend to think it's going to be. One of the things is that people from the Office of Security call you ahead of time and tell you all the questions. Well, ask you all the questions that are going to be on the polygraph exam and you answer and then they sort of ask you some follow-up questions to make sure you're telling the truth and are planning to tell the truth when you're actually taking the exam. The mo- my favorite pol- uh, follow-up question being, are you sure you only smoked marijuana 10 times? <laughs> you know, so you, you sort of, I had a long negotiation with them in the pre-call about how much pot I had smoked. Um, and then you get to the exam and sure enough, it's all the same questions. And sometimes they will say, is the question you gave in your pre-call accurate? You know, so it's all, as long as you've been honest, it's all very easy. And then it was done. And then they had one last question that they had not, it was the only one they hadn't asked on the pre-call, which was, are you joining the CIA so that you can write stories about it later? And I was so, I was completely unprepared for that question. And it really struck to the heart of who I was since I was a writer, but wasn't joining the CIA for that reason. But once they asked the question, I was, my brain was like, uh, huh. I probably will get a lot of good material here. So I was absolutely certain I was going to fail the whole thing based on that question. But I told them, no, that's not why I was there. And I did pass. So we have your CIA polygrapher to thank for the Americans. (laughs) Exactly. Now that you mentioned this, this is a good idea. (laughs) Um, uh, One of the things I found so interesting in your book, but I have to say, looking back at the Americans, I say it's now in retrospect, not terribly surprising. Um, is that you're you're deeply skeptical of espionage, and you write a lot of it in the book about uh, uh, the the damage that you think espionage does. You say espionage does incredible damage to the fragile trust between nations, ally and adversary alike. And you say that you became skeptical about espionage in general and human source espionage in particular soon after you joined the CIA. That must have been quite a shock to become sort of disillusioned earlier in your career as an intelligence officer, particularly even given the buildup of actually joining the agency? Yeah, it was very tough. And, and, I, and I think I also didn't fully let it in. Like I couldn't fully deny it, but I didn't fully let it in either. I, it's funny, I was doing a talk the other day and the person who introduced me had plucked something out of something I'd written and said, you know, Joe Weisberg, who spent three and a half years at the CIA and did uh, multiple file reviews. And I thought, wow, I'm really the only former CIA officer who is bragging in his bio about having done file reviews. But uh, but it's, you know, it really was interesting because as a trainee and someone just who wasn't there very long and just doing these interim assignments, I happened to stumble into this situation where I was asked to do this kind of bureaucratic exercise of this very big review of cases in in one branch of the agency. And I was really, I don't remember what they wanted me to look for. I was looking for some obscure thing that I could have just, you know, scanned and found, but I read all the, I read all the files. I, you know, maybe that's an exaggeration. Some of these files were incredibly long, but I really read them. And I was cleared to, and nobody really noticed or gave a crap what I was doing. So the fact that it was taking me 10 times as long as it should have to do my file review didn't, wasn't noticed or didn't bother anybody. But it ended up being this kind of very deep dive into a far more extensive series of espionage cases than I normally would have been exposed to at that point in my career. And I found that it just started to dawn on me the more and more of them I read that I didn't see any useful intelligence. 
And furthermore, than this particular area I was working in, these people's lives were certainly in danger from working with the CIA. So their lives were being put at risk for what seemed to me very little value. And from that point on, I started to sort of think about how, what I could learn from that and how I could extrapolate it, right? Because it's tricky at the CIA. You're reading one big chunk of files. How do you know if that represents most of the cases or many of the cases? So I spent a lot of time. I did work in other areas and I saw the cases there and I tried to compare those. I had a very, very small but not zero exposure to like the most highly classified stuff. And I got to sort of compare it to those. And the conclusion I ended up reaching was that the cases I had looked at probably represented a pretty substantial majority, not all, but a majority of the cases in really being of low to no value. So then the question becomes, what what's what is the value? Well, probably there are a small number of cases that something really useful and valuable to the United States comes from. Um, but then what's the what's the damage? And the damage is pretty evident. I mean, all you have to think about is all the countries we spy on who all know we're spying on them and how that affects our relationship and what it, what it makes them feel about us and how it has contributed to sort of, you know, a perception around like all these conspiracy theories about the CIA around the world as exaggerated and nutty as they are, don't come from no, nowhere, right? If we weren't doing all that spying, uh, we would have a different reputation in the world. So, you know, this is all, it, it's highly theoretical in a sense. You can't really do a balance sheet and say, I can prove that it is or isn't worth it. But I certainly left the CIA very dubious that human source espionage uh, really should have worked its way out of the novels. <laughs> it's probably where it should have remained. And it seems to me this is one of the big central conflicts you're, you're dealing with in the Americans, where you have uh, uh, Elizabeth and Philip, who are these two Russian intelligence officers living in the United States, posing as Americans, and they're here doing covert intelligence gathering. And there are times where they go through these just elaborate operations in which some people are hurt, some people are killed. And in the end, it's not even clear what the value of it was. And was it really worth it? Or did, did they even accomplish what they were trying to set out? And sometimes they don't even know, you know, whether Moscow thinks that it was successful. So did that experience early in the CIA seeing you know, the fruits of espionage and how they could often be so sort of disappointing or ambiguous. Did that inform your thinking about how you would write about spies actually doing that kind of work? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it was sort of, it almost became a joke on the show because, you know, my partner Joel and I would, you know, and our writing team would, would come up with these stories and we'd put them all together and then we'd pitch them to net, write outlines, pitch them to the network. And you inevitably got to the point of someone pointing out or you just admitting that all this crazy elaborate stuff they were doing didn't accomplish anything. And and once you were telling like your 20th story like that, it was funny. Like it was just funny. But the, I think the way we dealt with it creatively that I think was successful was we didn't really, we didn't really try to say that, you know, so you had to kind of cock one eye to notice mm -hmm. that part. And, and so it didn't become, you know, kind of this repetitive bummer. Um, but it certainly underlied the whole thing that you could look back and say, look at all the, all that they did. And unlike real spies, they also did enormous personal damage. They killed a lot of people. They wreaked tremendous havoc. And for what? It's, it, it's a testament to the, 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 the characters that you wrote in that I can remember maybe it was like season two or season three, turning to my husband and saying like, these are despicable people. Like I despise what they're doing and I am deeply invested in their outcome. Like, I want to see what happens to them. And it creates this real tension that I think is actually does 
to a significant degree, reflect what it's really like to work in intelligence, where people are asked to do things that are often illegal in the country they're operating, possibly immoral, uh, and yet they're being told that it's for a higher purpose and it's all for a good cause. And, and they have to believe that on some level to keep doing it. You have to believe it. And once you believe it and kind of organize your life and your actions accordingly, it's pretty challenging to stop believing it. It's because your investment in that being true is what's justified a lot of what you've done. Now, again, I, I say again that your average you know, CIA officer or KGB officer or SVR officer has not killed people or, or you know, done the things that Philip and Elizabeth have done, but they have generally, the average one has manipulated people, lied to people, put other people's lives at risk. I don't know what percentage of them have gotten somebody killed, but not a tiny percentage, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a, boy, it's a tough and I would say dubious job from that perspective. Did that experience of going through all those files and doing that review, is that ultimately what led you to leave the agency after three and a half years? I think so. You know, as I said, I, I had a big part of me that was sort of seeing all these things, reaching all these conclusions, asking all these questions, and also kind of fighting it because, because I, I liked it there too. And I, I had good friends there and I liked the people. And I, there was something sort of general about the organization that I liked. I was having a good experience. So I, I didn't want to take that all in either. I had some personal stuff that was going on. My father had become very ill and ended up dying and I'd taken a leave to take care of him and I'd gotten engaged. And there, so there were also kind of personal reasons that I was sort of forefronting for myself about it's time to, it's time to let this go. But I think, I think that what was really behind it was not wanting to do that work. This also leads to one of the, you know, you do have, and the book is not proscriptive necessarily, but you do make some, some recommendations. <clears throat> There's one that strikes me as, and he's probably going to be seen by many people as the more provocative one, uh, which is that you say the U.S. should move away from spying as a tool of international affairs and work towards a truce between the United States and Russia, where we both agree not to recruit any more people to spy on each other. That's I mean, that's that is that it, most of your former colleagues will probably look at that and say, like, that'll never happen. Why do you think that's something important for policymakers and for Americans in general to take seriously and to entertain that idea that we would stop spying, at least with human spies, on Russia? I should say that I am among those who think it will never happen. I don't, I don't think that's <laughs> in the cards, and I don't see anybody thinking seriously about that or considering it or even necessarily wanting to do it, uh, in part because the conflict is hot, the suspicion is high, and my own feeling that the benefit of the spying is so very low is not a widely shared perception in the intelligence community. And I don't want to dismiss that. I don't think it's an easy thing. It's not something where I would say I am categorically right that all this spying is worthless. I don't even think that. I think most of it is worthless. And I, but I also was there, you know, 30 years ago. And as I have indicated, didn't see everything by a long shot. So, you know, most people would disagree with me and, and who's to, I don't know how to ultimately judge it. I just, my opinions are, are, are what they are. But at the end of the day, I think we want to move away from the kind of root assumptions that we need to be in the kind of conflict we were with the Soviet Union and are today with Russia. And the idea that part of the way you manage one of those conflicts is through espionage is really a subcategory. So, it, you know, the big thing is letting go of the idea that we're good and they're bad and that we are righteous and they are, you know, evil and that 
the conflict has been caused by them attacking us when we've just defended ourselves. The main thing is to let go of those ways of looking at it. Um, but I don't particularly think that's going to happen either. But, you know, whether or not one might get there in part by starting to dismantle some of the some of the structures, some of the ways you deal with it, even reducing it, even even less espionage, you know, or for example, uh, you know, one of my stronger suggestions is that we just stop the sanctions against Russia. Let's just stop. Uh, you know, I think that's it's it's. I don't want to say that it's unprovoked. I want to say that we have provoked each other back and forth so much. And the question is, how do you pull out of that kind of situation? You you could argue forever about who started it and always blame the other guy for making the last move, or you could say, "Huh, I've done a lot of provocative stuff too. Let me let me try to do less and see what happens." Um, what did you do after you left the CIA? Uh, I moved back to Chicago, uh, where I was from, and uh, then ultimately to New York. And I spent, uh, you know, quite a few years writing novels. I wrote a, a novel about a tenth grader and a, a kind of a comic novel about a tenth grader in a suburban New Jersey high school called Tenth Grade. Sort of followed his adventures, and then I wrote a spy novel. You know, when I left the CIA, I thought I would never write about it because I thought that would be a betrayal of, you know, the culture that I was still kind of a part of the kind of cultural secrecy and a betrayal of my friends there, you know, technically you are allowed to write about it. You just have to submit mm-hmm. it and get approval from the publications review board. Um, but, but that wasn't good enough for me. I, I still thought it would be kind of wrong. So it took me a decade to kind of pull myself out of that mindset at which point I thought to myself, I have some real insider knowledge here that would lead me to re- write a different novel than other both the insider knowledge and different perspective that would lead to a different novel. So I wrote a, a spy novel called An Ordinary Spy, and that's ultimately what led me to, to start working in television. So how did you get your first break in TV? I was, uh, I was teaching at a high school in Queens, um, teaching history and English, at special education high school. I'd been there for about five years, and I had uh, published this spy novel, and I I got a call from an agent in Hollywood who said, I, I read your book. You know, you, you seem to have a pretty unique perspective on spying and that's very, that's valuable in Hollywood. Would you be interested in writing for television? And I was, uh, you know, at the time I was working my job as a teacher during the day, I was going to grad school to get a teaching certificate at night so I could keep my job. I was trying to write on the weekends. I had a family with a, with a young daughter and I was broke. So, <laughs> you know, Basically, 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 I was waiting for that call and uh, unbelievably fortunate that it came because normally you have to go out and make that stuff happen. You don't you don't get the call. But I got lucky. When you wrote Ordinary Spy, were you writing it hoping that somebody would see potential for it as uh, a TV or show or a movie or just call you and ask you to do screenwriting? It didn't. Not really. I mean, I'm sure it occurred. I knew there was a thing called selling your novel to the movies. You know, uh, where somebody would would take your novel and, although mostly leaving you out of it, write a movie, and that somehow there might be some financial element of that that was good for you. So I'm sure I, I hoped for that, but I wasn't thinking about uh, transitioning into a career in Hollywood at all. I really had wanted to be a novelist since I was, you know, a young kid, and so that was where my heart and soul were. What was your first TV writing job? Uh, so after uh, after I worked with this. Uh, agent for a while, he got me a, a kind of a, a job writing an episode for the show Damages on FX. And I did, I can't remember one or two of those. And then 
a guy named Graham Yost, who I'd worked with, who had helped me also figure out how to write television and worked with me on a, a earlier pilot I'd written, uh, hired me full time to work on the staff of a show he was running called Falling Skies, which was a alien invasion series. And, and which was, I really had a good time. I mean, I really, it was very difficult because I, my family was here and that job was in LA and I traveled back and forth every week, which was, which was pretty backbreaking, but being in a room, you know, kicking stories around with other writers and then, and then writing a script, I, I never would have predicted how much I would have enjoyed that because my writing had all been solitary and I, I couldn't yeah. even imagine the idea of writing collaboratively. That didn't make any sense to me, but I, I really loved it and still do. That's a fairly unusual trajectory into writing in, in film, isn't it? That you went from writing in isolation to your first real gig is suddenly you are in the writer's room for a big show that is, you know, heavily produced and you're kind of right in the thick of it. There's no sort of, you know, ramp up to that. You just jump right into it. Yeah, it was it was a uh, it was pretty it was a big cultural and, and emotional shift. Um I know, you know, there are a fair number of novelists who go through something similar, similar, but certainly most people as, as who write in Hollywood that I know have either started out in Hollywood or there are also a lot of former playwrights. And that's maybe a little bit of a middle ground, but they seem to have in their own way from making theater productions, a lot of collaborative experience, which is just not really true of the novelist. But you, you it sounds like you took to it really quickly, the collaborative part. I did. I, I, you know, even now, if I think about, you know, my, my personality, I do, I like to be alone and I like to work at a slow pace without pressure and mm -hmm. TV writing is the opposite of all of that. <laughs> right. And I, to this day, don't like the pace and don't like the pressure, but working collaboratively with other people is, is, a. it's sort of alternates. It's either a joy or when it's not a joy, it's still incredibly uh, creatively productive. Like you, you put more, I mean, I have a very, very close partnership with Joel Fields, who I write everything with. And, you know, when we put our two brains together to break a story or write a script, just, you know, what, what we can accomplish is so much more than we can accomplish on our own. It's like, there's a, it's not just like two brains, two brains, like four brains. And now I think that requires having a, you know, partnership, a partner who you're really simpatico with, but, uh, when it works, it's, it's really something, it's like you're transcending your own abilities in a way that feels really good. Yeah. They, they, it's a, when I've written collaboratively with people and it has to be the right collaborator, but you sort of, you fill in for each other and you fill in the gaps in each other's craft and an understanding. Uh, and, you know, it, it seems to me that, you know, the, Shows like the ones that you've worked on, the success is probably because those writers are all firing on the same cylinders and working really well together, I would think. That's right. And it's also it's more than the writers because it becomes, you know, this team that is also the directors and the actors and the network executives. That's a lot to ask that big and diverse of a group to all be on the same page and fire on the same cylinder cylinders. But I, it happens. It is possible. And that, that is the hive mind feeling of that is so great. And then when the, um, the product comes out and it's some, on some version, it's what you imagined on some version, it's different, but in every way you love it and, and, and the ways it's expanded beyond your own notion all seem like they've just made it better and better and better. That's a, that's a great feeling. 
Yeah, and you, when you worked on Damages, uh, which was, you know, a huge star vehicle for Glenn Close, I mean, a traditional film actor. You worked with Graham Yost, who, of course, did Justified, another giant successful series. You did The Americans. You, it sounds like you kind of come into your own as a TV writer at, at this onset of this golden age of television, right, that we, I think, are still in. Did you have a sense, I mean, that TV was changing and was becoming a place where you were going to see big movie stars now turning out television series and that TV shows would have the room to do these almost novelistic kind of treatments of storylines? I mean, FX was kind of ground zero for some of these places as well. Did you? It, was it obvious as you were doing it that, like, wow, we're in the middle of something that's kind of, um, you know, historic or, or, or unusual in the history of TV? Yeah, you could you could really see it happening. I, I I didn't anticipate any of it by so much as a moment, but I did see it. I did notice it happening, and it, you know, John Landgraf, who runs FX, was you know not only a very important part of making all that happen, but very thoughtful about it as it was happening. So it was always interesting to you know to talk to him and, and get his sense of where things were and where they were going and what the what the possibilities were. I think the sort of you know we were obviously you know, after, you know, the Sopranos and, and, and Mad Men. So we were, we were jumping onto a, a train that was always already going. Um, but in particular, what that meant for, uh, what you knew was possible and, and would, what you would probably be allowed to do in terms of that very long form storytelling was, it was just so exciting and so liberating and, you know, then watching as it as it got to the point where, you know, there was almost no movie star who might not work in television. That, that was just sort of fun to see television getting that kind of uh, uh, place in the culture. And, you know, I grew up, I, as I think I already mentioned, I grew up loving TV and, and watching a lot of TV. But it always had a sort of a feeling of like, I mean, first of all, there's the culture and there's my family. In the culture, it had a feeling of a kind of mass popular entertainment that wasn't, that could be good, but wasn't, you know, wasn't the movies. And in my family, the feeling, particularly from my father, was essentially that it was evil. <laughs> I mean, he really, <laughs> you know, he was reading his Dostoevsky at night and it was not a fan of the television shows that I watched. He would, he would make a little, a little bit of, you know, begrudging room when he wanted to watch PBS. But uh, but the crap I was watching was not uh, appreciated. So you know to, to see a sort of undeniable shift where you know as a as an art form its potential and possibilities were kind of widely known was 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 great. It was a great time to be there. And and I and the specific show we made, I I, I just no way we could have made it earlier. Yeah, I mean, it it does feel like if, if somebody had tried to pitch something like that ten or twelve years earlier, it would have been very hard for people to to see how that would even work. Yeah, and, and I'll also add to that that the, another transformation that was taking place at the time, and and it's this is this is very complicated. I don't even know where it is right now. But at the time we were making, starting out with the Americans, ratings themselves were losing their cent- centrality to what could make a show. Uh, successful. And especially the first couple seasons, our ratings were very low. And if we had somehow managed to get on the air, you know, five years earlier, or, or even at the same time at a, at a broadcast network, I don't see any way we, we wouldn't have been quickly canceled. But, you know, at that time at FX, uh, they were 
absolutely eager to have a show that they thought had potential and that was kind of a critical darling and that had, you know, a, a small but loyal fan base that and that they loved. That was that was enough for them. And that was boy, was that lucky. I think Breaking Bad sort of followed that model, too, right, where the first couple of seasons, it took a while for people to catch up to it. And then it sort of takes off like a rocket and people are going back and rewatching seasons one and two and then they get caught up. I felt I think I think it felt like the Americans had that same kind of slow burn at the beginning. And then it was like everybody was aware of this thing and it was a phenomenon. Yeah, I I think, you know, we used to talk about that all the time. Will it will it take off like Breaking Bad in season three or season four? And and certainly it never got uh, it never took off with the kind of fuel that Breaking Bad had. But you know, nevertheless, it's gone this, from the this shift where, you know, in season one and two, we were sitting right making this show in this little, in these stages in Gowanus, Brooklyn, and nobody even knew we were there. And then, uh, you know, and, and when people would ask me what I did and I told them nobody had heard of it and didn't know what it was and said, oh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll take a look at that. And now more often than not, when it comes up, people know the show. I'm still, I'm still kind of adjusting to that in a very yeah. pleasant way. What, what, tell the story of how you actually got the idea to create it. I mean, it's it's often said that the inspiration for the Americans were the so-called illegals, who were these these Russian officers who were living in the United States under assumed identities, posing as Americans, uh, and they were ultimately found out and then traded back to Russia in a spy swap. And there's all kinds of great stories that follow off of that. But talk about when you got the idea and how it actually came about that you started shooting the show. So the you know throughout the Cold War that. Soviets had these illegals, these people, these spies pretending to be American citizens in both the United States and many other countries as well. It's a very unusual form of espionage that I don't think anybody else practiced. And because of the sort of freedom and openness of our society, we were probably particularly vulnerable to that because somebody could kind of set up a fake identity, live live here and not be noticed by anybody. Um, I don't think people really knew if that had well, at least the general population didn't know if that had ended with the Soviet era or not. Um, But in 2010, a group of Russian illegals were arrested by the FBI who had been tracking them at least for some time. And so it became apparent that the Russians had continued this after the, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So it was all over the papers, including, you know, probably an assumption that this was very dastardly and damaging, but from the beginning, some people questioning what the hell they were doing. I mean, 2000, 10 wasn't even, it wasn't such a hot point between the United States and Russia. And these guys had been there for years. So, you know, what, what was the purpose of that spying? Anyway, I got a call from uh, a couple of guys who ran what was then called DreamWorks Television, which was a production company that had uh, worked with me on a previous pilot and also was behind uh, the science fiction show I was working on. And they said, what do you think about this? Maybe you should do a show based on this. And I, I, I said, let me think about it. I wasn't, you know, you never want to turn down a call like that, really. But I didn't immediately get it uh, because I was very focused on wondering what the hell these guys were doing and why. Um, but I started wandering the streets a little bit, which is what I do when I need to think. And I thought, well, OK, first of all, if you think I've been as we've discussed previously, I'd been really actively studying the Soviet Union for years and had reached a point where I no longer saw KGB officers as as villains, uh, but rather as, you know, complex people I could relate to. So I thought if you made the illegal KGB spies the heroes of the show, like the tra- traditional thing would be you make it about an FBI chasing these guys. I thought if you flip that and make these guys the heroes, that gets very interesting to me. And then, and then the other, there was one other 
I hesitate to call it insight because it probably seems so obvious in retrospect, but it was, it took me a couple days to get there, that if you move it back to the Cold War, then you have all the stakes that are missing from the actual case in, in 2010. So at that point, I was, I, that was kind of off and running. Did it occur to you at the time to, and this seems almost more incidental, but that putting it back in the Cold War would allow you to create this period drama, essentially, too? I mean, one of the things that people do love about the show, in addition to the characters and the storyline, is the nostalgia, right? That this is recent history for a lot of people in our cohort. It's the 80s. It's the music. It's the clothes. It's the furniture. Did it occur to you that just visually it would also be this kind of ripe territory you'd get to play with? It, it did. And I thought that was a lot of fun. You know, my initial instinct was to put it in the 70s because, you know, in a way, I, I was born in 1965. So I was both alert and aware in the 70s, but also it seemed to it seemed to pass by pretty quickly in a way. But all the style and the music and the clothes and the hair and everything like that from the 70s is what really hits that button hardest for me. I just, I just picture a big, colorful, psychedelic picture, and I just wanna, I just wanna do it. But it became pretty obvious that to really get the stakes of the show to work, you wanted it to be partly about Ronald Reagan and, and that era in America, which has a much less nostalgic feel for me. Joel and I used to joke about this all the time that people always asked about asked us about what research we did for the period. And we were just like, oh, we just remember it. You know, I, I was old enough in the eighties. That's just, that's just firmly planted in my memory and doesn't have that kind of gloss of nostalgia for me, but certainly it does for a lot of viewers. I think I heard or read at some point that, that the research was so precise that there were the newscasts that are playing in the background were ones that would have been generally right around the time that you were imagining in the timeline of the story. I, I don't know if that's true, but it does seem like so many of the choices are very specific. We were we were borderline maniacal about that. <laughs> so if we had uh, you know a sitcom that we were going to have playing in the background in the Jennings house while Elizabeth and Paige were talking about something, we wanted to know what day of the week our script was taking place on and what sitcoms were on that night and at what time. And if there was, a, if we had, because the, something had to be on a Sunday to fit in the story and the, as the story progressed, this had to be a Tuesday for the right amount of time to pass. And the sitcom we really wanted was a Wednesday night show. We wouldn't use it. And all I can say is that was a little bit insane, but it, I think it, for us, for us ourselves, it fostered a kind of creative environment of, uh, of trying to be real that did serve us well. And, and obviously there was stuff in the show that was bananas and not real, but being sort of hyper vigilant about what was real, I think helped us kind of balance that. As I was reading your book, Russia Upside Down, there was, there was a passage that struck me that I thought this feels almost like a mirror version of what played out on the show. And you, you write about as you put it, like this self-inflicted sense of myopia that caused you, and I think you would argue a lot of people in the U.S., to misunderstand how Soviet society functioned. And that the big thing that you missed was that the Soviet Union, you write, was a complete society, just like ours, any other society. It was a full and complex country with people leading their lives there. And it strikes me that in the show, 
Elizabeth views the Amer- America as the in the binary way, right? It is just sort of it's all capitalist, it's all greedy, it's all bad, and the Soviet Union is virtuous and it's good. And of course, she has to believe that to some degree to kind of keep it all together. And that Philip obviously serves the role of the one who's he's doubting and he's kind of turning more like uh, to being an American. Um, I mean, it seems like that kind of this, that what you're writing about in the book is sort of at the heart of the conflict of these these two characters, and that in a way they're kind of standing in for for the different societies that you're writing about now in, in nonfiction. That's right. I, it's interesting. I tended to uh, think of Philip, in partly as you just expressed, as as the one who was who was getting Americanized, but it was also obvious that he was more open and becoming progressively more open as the show went on or as the series went on or as their lives went on. And Elizabeth fundamentally, although she did go through some changes and open up in certain personal ways and family ways, her, her ideological views were pretty well frozen and never really changed. And, you know, the conflict between those two created a lot of drama and a lot of interest and a lot of feeling inside a marriage. You know, I, I, I note that the, the kind of, feeling that you are uh, very deeply entrenched in and connected to a firm belief system and that you will serve that belief system and believe all of it is, and I, I probably don't understand this well enough to talk about it too much, but I think that's considered a kind of a psychological stage that most people will pass through when they are younger. The trick is, it's also easy to get stuck in it, which is to some degree true of a lot of developmental stages. You're not necessarily moving through your developmental stages. You need help and support and certain instincts of your own. You can get stuck in in stages from very early in your childhood. Um, So that's one that I think a lot of people get stuck in. And that's one that I was stuck in for a long time. And I can easily imagine that I might not have gotten out of that. And you you do apply that psychological lens to policy-making decisions, which I think is really compelling. You write towards the middle of the book that for the U.S. and the Soviet Union, spreading communism and democracy was never truly about helping other countries, but stemmed from a parallel Soviet and American need to feel superior to one another. This is, this is to me, still the sort of fundamental motivating force between, behind the conflict with Russia uh, and, and going in both directions. And if you just listen to what the leaders say— you know, they're constantly trying to prove how they're better and how their system is better and how the other system is failing. And of course, we are also most dangerously in both, in the case of both countries, trying to contribute to the failure of the other system. But, you know, it's, it's, it's important and also, I think, kind of interesting to pull back and say, what, where is that competitive impulse actually coming from, you know, I was talking to someone about this a a few weeks ago, and I was saying that if you're about to make a decision, are you going to live in country A or country B, it kind of makes sense to think about which is a better country, or at least which is going to be a better country for you to live in, because you've got that choice ahead. But that's not the case for 99.999% of people. So what what, what is the impulse and necessity of constantly saying, we're better than Russia in this way. We're better in that way. Look, you know, not to say they're struggling economically in a way that's sympathetic and hopes and hope they do better, but but point out to their struggling economy as a failure that shows that we're better. What, what is that whole impulse from? And, you know, I tried to track it in one way in the book, uh, back to what I've said many times, which is 
which is if if you're better and they're worse, then you feel better about yourself, not just your country, but your yourself as an individual. But it's a it's a very damaging uh, approach. So the Americans debuted in, in 2013 when things weren't exactly chummy between the U.S. and Russia. But over the arc of the show, which concludes in 2018, you're seeing the relationship, we're all seeing the relationship deteriorate dramatically. And of course, perhaps most dramatically as we go into 2016 and, and the election with Russian interference and the election, which you know is from their point of view also a response to how they perhaps feel that we've been interfering in their politics. So talk about what that was like for you and the writers as you watched this relationship Granted, one that's not about the time period you're writing in, but it's still these same, fundamentally these same two actors, watching it deteriorate so dramatically. And did that affect how you thought about the story that you were writing that takes place in the 80s? We had to, um, I, I mean, there was a there's very built-in notion in this show that made it kind of suitable to put on at a time when the relationship was not so bad, right? Because you couldn't have done this show 10 years earlier in the same way that you couldn't do a show about Al-Qaeda, you know, five years after September 11. There was just too much animosity and resentment for pe- people to be willing to sort of sympathize with KGB officers. But by 2013, it had died down enough that we thought maybe. We didn't know. We still thought there might be just so much pushback that people wouldn't go there, but we thought it was possible. And then it worked out. People were willing to identify with these characters. Then we get two years into it. And as you said, things start really heating up and, and, and going down the drain and getting much more hostile. And that was, uh, for me, very unwelcome, not just on a policy perspective, because that's not what I think should have been happening, but just from the much smaller perspective of, of the show and how I think we wanted people to view it, we wanted people working from that more relaxed, less hostile place. And, you know, Joel and I had this sort of constant effort to make sure that the rising hostility didn't infect our storytelling. Because, you know, again, our story was a, was taking place in the 80s and already was, you know, dealing with trying to sort of go against the hostility of that time. So we didn't want to play into that. We wanted to resisted and kind of right in a bubble, almost as if we didn't know what was happening. And, and, and do you think if you had pitched this show today in 2021, you could get it made? I don't know. I, I have thought about that. I don't know why it's a question TV writers think about, but we just, maybe we're all so relieved we got our show made. That you actually that we pulled it off. Yeah. Wondering, what if it had been earlier? What if it been later? <laughs> um, I think there were a lot of sort of kismet type things you know, at the time that, that made this show work. But I think in all fairness, the number one thing was that FX was a place that was interested in uh, looking at things from a different lens and subverting tropes and being open to things that might be too scary to a lot of other places, like trying to identify with, with KGB officers. Uh, And I think that's still true. So if that's the operative element, I think you could get it made today. Yeah, and it strikes me that you're right, that they did do a lot of show. I mean, Justified, to me, actually sticks out as that way, as like sort of doing the playing with the trope of the Western, right, right? And, and, and and just taking more time to, to explore the complexities of it. And that, that's that's what the Americans is doing, too. It's a spy show, yes, but it's, it's, it's far more nuanced in so many respects and kind of resists the idea of being a classic trope because, I mean, that's also been done before. Right, exactly, yeah. So where do you think the U.S. relationship with Russia is now? Like, I mean, we're we're sitting here, obviously, at the 
you know, we're into the Biden administration. We can maybe talk. I'd love to hear your thoughts about you know, Trump's approach to Russia. And you do write about it in the book. But I mean, how bad does it feel to you right now? Do you see opportunities? Well, you must see some opportunities for improving. And otherwise, you wouldn't have wrote a book, written a book about that. I feel pretty uh, dismal about where things are at. Um, if you look at their efforts to use propaganda, disinformation, social media to actively undermine our political system, that's bad. And then, you know, we have this long, elaborate list of sanctions, which is a aggressive and outright attempt to undermine their economic system. That's bad. These two things are related to each other. It's not that one side is trying to undermine the other one's society and the other one isn't. I think we tend to view it that way here, but I don't think that's right at all. I think we are sort of making equal efforts to undermine the foundations of each other's societies, and that's a disaster. There is no telling how effective it is, Um, in particular the Russian effort. Who knows? I mean, I, I would certainly argue against anybody who said that their efforts were fundamental to all the problems we're having. I don't believe that at all. I tend to agree more with someone who said that it's pouring fuel on a fire. Um, but you know, if you're on fire, you don't want anybody pouring fuel on it. It's, it, it's bad enough. You know, the economic impact of our sanctions is probably somewhat easier to measure a little bit beyond my field of expertise to measure it thoughtfully, but it seems to have done some real damage, but not catastrophic. Um, But, you know, these are two countries, that's a very profound and deep way to be going after each other. It was, I guess, also true during the original Cold War that we wanted to, uh, you know, undermine and undo each other's systems. Um, But even just taking sort of the KGB's efforts to use propaganda and disinformation back then to do that, they were comical. I mean, not 100%. They, They had some successes. For example, the you know, spreading this rumor that sticks to this day that the United States, you know, intentionally unleashed the AIDS virus. So, so, so they had an occasional really big success like that, but, but most of their efforts were bizarre and silly and and fell flat. And, and their efforts now, I I would say are sophisticated and, and working in a way that you never would have dreamed during the original cold war. So I, I think it's bad and I think it's dangerous. And I think that, you know, one of the, points of the book is to see if we can take some steps to work our way out of it. And I don't know that we can can work our way out of it, but I think the best idea is to work unilaterally, not focus on negotiations, not focus on if we don't do this, you can't do that. If you don't do that, we won't do this. But just look at ourselves and our own behavior and pull back on aggressive activities towards Russia and see what happens. You know, I think it's at least possible that they would respond in kind. I wouldn't and put a lot of money on it, but I think it's possible. And I think we would probably be better off anyway, just uh, easing up significantly on our aggressive attacks. The stakes, of course, in the Cold War, I mean, the ultimate stakes were that the two countries could get into a nuclear war, that they could, you know, destroy each other. I mean, do you still feel like the stakes are that high? I mean, they still obviously have nuclear weapons. I think most people think they take it as a given that, well, we would never do that. But do you worry about escalation in the same way as you worried about it in the 80s? Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. They're both heavily nuclear-armed countries. You know, they both have, you know, plenty of ground forces facing each other as well. Uh, the animosity is is just as strong. I mean, it, it, it the whole idea of a actual war with the Soviet Union or Russia 
has a sort of fantastical element. So I have trouble, I almost have trouble believing it, but I don't think that's the right instinct. I think the right instinct is if you have this much force arrayed against each other with this much ill will, that's pretty obviously dangerous. And you mentioned disinformation too, which I mean, obviously, you know, played a significant role in in 2016. And, you know, there was a Russian operation directed at that. But it strikes me also that now, I mean, if the Russians felt like they, you know, sort of started something of a disinformation ball rolling, they must be very happy with the with the level to which it has reached almost these kind of mythic proportions with QAnon and, and others who are just now kind of trapped in these just unbelievably, you know, Baroque, strange conspiracy theory narratives, not saying that it was, you know, the Russians that got everybody going on, that there's a long history of that kind of paranoid thinking in American politics. Uh, but I'm curious what you make of that moment that we're in right now, where you have people who are believing just the most bizarre, outlandish things about their government, about what it's capable of, stolen elections, all of it. I mean, and particularly as a writer, you know, how do you, when you kind of look at the, the landscape of, of disinformation and misinformation out there right now, what do you see? Uh, my take on it is that it's yet another opportun- opportunity to look at ourselves. So all, all the QAnon and, and stolen election stuff, I, I, I think it's nuts. I, I, I think it's as nuts as anybody else thinks it is. But I don't have anything uh, new or original to say about that. That's nuts and, and, and scary. But I think that rather than just looking at them and saying, how could they be so stupid? How could they believe these crazy theories? We ought to look at whoever is opposed to them should look at themselves. So, for example, you know, most people I know were willing to believe that Trump was you know, either a paid agent of Russia or, you know, suborned by them and and co-opted in a very direct way. And that was a conspiracy theory. There was no evidence for that. That was built out of out of nothing. And so it's useful to recognize that about yourself if you bought into that, because then you see that's not just these people believing crazy shit. I I am I'm vulnerable to that, too. And I have to be careful. I have to watch myself next time, you know, and, and the next time is coming. It, it's, it's just always around the corner. Do you, are you, are, are you, as you look ahead to the next election, I mean, how much do you worry that disinformation as it's playing a huge role, obviously now in, in largely on the right with around like the idea of the stolen election uh, will rear its head again in 2024, but, you know, potentially have worse consequences than it did uh, in 2016 and 2020. It, it to me has the, you know, I mentioned before somebody describing it well, I thought, as Russia pouring fuel on a fire. It seems to me this is now a self-sustaining fire. You know, you, I, I, I would imagine that whatever influence Russian efforts have, what, and however significant they were, which I don't know how to judge, in a sense would, would lessen now because it is the conflagration is so feeding on itself. Uh, that being said, even if that's true, and that's just kind of a guess. I mean, that could be that could be totally wrong. But even if that's true, one of the errors that I think Russia and we make is thinking that we can interfere in each other's affairs and try to undermine each other's affairs, and that's going to go in some direction that's good for us. I think that's 
almost, you know, the odds are that's not the case. A, whatever happens, you end up being, you end up setting yourself up as a target for blame if you got involved and messed in it. And two, if you think you're going to undermine somebody else's system and for some reason you think whatever comes next is going to be better for you, where, where are you getting that from? Would you like to return to this question of U.S.-Russia relations in another show? Do you want to treat it in fiction again? Probably not. You know, it's interesting, you know, Joel and I get often approached about kind of espionage series and we're a little, mm. we're a little burned out on espionage. But I think the sort of broad question of U.S.-Russia relations, I, I think I was ready. I mean, I would not have predicted this, but I was ready to tackle that in the nonfiction realm which is where this book came from. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not itching to write another book on that topic, but, but when I think about it these days, which I still do constantly, it is not the part of my brain that you know, likes to make up characters and stories. It's uh, what's really going on. Do you still like to watch espionage dramas or spy movies? Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm not, I'm not the biggest consumer of them, um, but uh, I'm... I will eventually see the latest James Bond. I'm sure I will. <laughs> it's kind of a been there, done that. Uh, well, you did sort of have like one of the great endings of a television series, I think most people agree, uh, in a long time. So it'd be kind of hard to top it. Um, although I have to say, as a, as, a, as, a, as a hopeful fan of that show, it did strike me that the way you ended The Americans was, all right, well... You know, the Soviet Union, they don't know it, but it's not that far away from collapsing. So Paige and the family might be reunited. So it seemed like you were leaving a door open there, maybe. Um, you know, I've said many times, and I'll say it again, that we, that as you said, said, the ending felt right. And it was very satisfying to have an ending that felt right. And I would be loath to risk that by having that not be the ending. So I like to, I like to continually slam that door in part to, in part to make sure that I don't try to open it one day. Did you always know how you would end the show? Um, I think that somewhere around the end of season two, Joel and I started pitching endings and we came up with something that was so close to the ending. We ended up with that was for all intents and purposes, the same. It had some major differences, but it was fundamentally that ending. We never thought it would stick because the whole way we worked was to remain as open as we could to unexpected stories. And those invariably lead you in directions where if you thought you were pointed in a certain direction, you're not, that's not where you're going if you, if you stay open. Um, but as it turned out, I think by, you know, the end of season four, or the beginning of season five, we, we saw that we could go there and we still liked it. So it was in our heads for a long time. It's a hard ending to swallow because, you know, as a as somebody as a fan, I mean, because the family is broken up. But I think it absolutely it felt right. I mean, it would have in some ways felt for me as a viewer worse if Paige had, had to go with them, um, which I always think, by the way, if there is a spinoff to be made, it is about Martha and her life in Moscow. Like Martha, talk about the human collateral in the story, man. I mean, just <laughs> abandoned in Moscow, cast aside. I want to, I want to know what happens to Martha. I, I have to tell you, Shane, you are the third person ever suggests that, and the first two were me and Joel. Nobody, <laughs> nobody else but you has ever said that. Joel and I wanted to do that. Like we, we wanted to do it as like a season inside the show where we'd right. spend like a whole season following her in Moscow. <sighs> 
And uh, I, I still think that would have been a lot of a lot of fun. And probably, you know, the Americans was already always considered a kind of a slow show and one without mm-hmm. a big audience. I think yeah. we could have made it five times slower and shrunk our audience to me, Joel, and you. <laughs> but I would have loved to have done that. We would have had a great time, yeah. a really good time. Yeah. And did you get to you actually? It's it's you I mentioned the illegals. Andre Bezrikov, who was one of the illegals, blurbed your book. So how did you get to know him? Uh, was it after the show had completed or, or before? It was very recently. Um, while the show was still on, I had seen a interview he had done in Russia with, I don't remember, if, I, maybe it was an article he wrote or an interview he did. I can't remember, but I saw something he did where he talked about the Americans. And he said that, um, you know, although all the murders and whatnot were bananas and nothing like anything that really happened, he said it was very emotionally true to his mm. family's experience. And I, that, I can't even tell you what that meant to me. I mean, you know, that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to figure out what the emotionally true story would be for a family in that, in that situation. But we had no way to really know if we'd got it because <laughs> the number yeah. of authorities on that are like him and a couple others. So right. I really was like the greatest compliment, you know, we ever could have gotten. And when I finished my book, I was thinking about who, who could comment on it. I thought, well, I wonder if I could find him. You know, you think with the internet these days, you can find, he was, he's a bit of a public figure in Russia. So I thought I would be Mm. able to track him down and it was not that easy, but not that hard. And we started corresponding and he was, you know, extremely nice and gracious and he read the book and liked it. And, and I sort of, you know, I, I I really feel sort of tickled to have him as, as, as someone who, you know, blurbed the book because, you know, if, if part of the idea of both the Americans and the book is to kind of break down the sort of general notions of the enemy to be able to sort of say what this guy's embrace of these ideas is, is meaningful uh, just felt sort of thematically on point. And did he, did he talk at all about what his life has been like since he's been back? And, and they had a child, I think here, or at least one who has gone back with them, right? This story, I mean, if this type of stuff interests you, it's really worth sort of, you know, digging into this, the story of his family. Um, I haven't, spoken to him about it personally, but I've read about it because there's been quite a bit written, you know, that their kids, well, either didn't know what their parents were doing or family claims they didn't know, or one of them knew. I don't think anybody a hundred percent knows the answer, but it is clear that the kids were, you know, at least most, at least for most of their lives didn't know and maybe never and were, you know, really you can imagine what it was like for these kids, these young, they weren't that young. I think they were young teenagers at, at the point when their parents were arrested, but if their parents arrested and, and put in jail and, and deported and the kids had to leave too. And then the kids tried to get Canadian citizenship because they had lived there for a long time. And incredibly enough, it took many years of sort of legal wrangling and governmental affairs. I think Canada actually finally did give the kids citizenship but you, so on the one hand, that's so heartbreaking because the kids, I think, did not fit in. They didn't speak Russian, and I don't yeah. think. And I don't think they were able to sort of adjust to life in Russia. So they ended up back in the West. So the family was broken up. By the way, I never knew any of this until after the Americans, but I don't think I did. So I, I don't, maybe I did. I don't remember. But, um, you know, the, they ha- it's been a tough time. It's been a tough time for those those kids. And it's such a completely unusual story. And I think the thing I love about it best is that whoever made this decision in Canada was able to get beyond the fact 
that whatever claim these kids had to citizenship was based on lies of their parents, which would have essentially made it possible for them to deny the kids citizenship. They were able to get beyond that and put kind of sympathy for the kids first. At least that's how I see the story. And, and I, I love that. I think that's sort of a model for, for moving forward. So you've got the book out now, uh, and you've got a new project in development too, right, uh, with Steve Carell. Do you want to talk about that a little bit real quick? Uh, yeah, Joel and I are, are just sort of nearing the end of writing a limited series, which is going to start Steve Carell, which is about a, a serial killer and his therapist. And we're going to start shooting it in uh, January, and uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So is 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 your long-term fascination with Russia gets kind of played into the Americans? Is this like, you know, your experience with therapy now gets played into this show or is this something totally different? Uh, I think that, you know, for for Joel and I both, there's a lot of lot of interest in that topic and a lot of desire yeah. to write about it. And, you know, the question was really how do you how do you make that dramatic? You know? And uh in treatment had one answer to that that I loved. I mean, I thought that show was was just great. But overall, you know, we made a number of efforts to to figure out how to dramatize therapy, and it kept not quite working. So in a way, we just grabbed one of the classic Hollywood genres and mashed it together. And uh, incredibly enough, I mean, it's a little early to say it with any confidence, but it seems to seems to be working. That's great. So are you in production now with it? Well, we're in prep, and we'll start shooting in, in January. That's great. That's great. Uh, so our last question, this is a tradition we're starting here uh, on Chatter, is we have a Chatter box, which you can see right here. Wait, hold, uh, can you hold that up again? Printed, yeah, here's the Chatter box. Very, very <laughs> fancy, I guess. <laughs> it's a nice box. Yeah, very. Uh, there are 10 pre-printed questions in here. I'm going to reach in and grab one at random, and this is going to be our, our farewell question for you. Well, I have are to ask ready? a question about the Chatter box before you do this. Yeah. Oh, sure. How, what are where are those questions? Questions you could ask anybody? Are they from re viewers? What is that? What's the story of those? No, nope, these are these are questions that uh, we have come up with here, and that we will recycle and repeat for all guests. So the next guest may get the same question you got. They may get a completely different one. All right, bring it on. It's our little, it's our little take on the Proust questionnaire. Okay. Oh, <laughs> this is this is great. This is this is such a good one. Uh, who played the best James Bond? Who's your favorite Bond? <sighs> that is a. Very, very difficult question. I think that <laughs> for you especially, because <laughs> yeah, no. your answer could prove controversial. Yeah, I'm just going to say this: that I have had a, I grew up with this kind of baseline criticism of Roger Moore. Like there was just this feeling: oh, Sean Connery was so great, and Roger Moore was so not. And I just never felt that. I just loved Roger Moore. I thought he was fantastic, and I still do. So it's hard to pick a best. You know, by, by, the, by the time Daniel Craig, who I think is great, took over, those movies did not have the kind of death grip lock on my soul that they had had previously. So I just generally don't have such strong feelings about it. But, but I guess what I, I would end up saying, rather than saying who's best, I would say who's my James Bond? Yeah. It's Roger Moore. I'm going to go with you there. I'm going to back you up on this. He was the first Bond for me. I know you're supposed to say Sean Connery. I kind of like Timothy Dalton. I know you're never supposed to say that. But yeah, I mean, he was the I mean, View to a Kill. You had um, for, for Your Eyes Only, Octopussy. I mean, you know, he was smooth. He was a very particular kind of Bond. He wasn't sort of, you know, the blunt instrument of a Daniel Craig or the like, the cat-like uh, Sean Connery. But 
I'm a Roger Moore stan. I'm, I'm there with you on this. Me, we're, we're together on Roger Moore and Martha in Moscow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Somehow we can mash this up into a winning show. Um, Joe Weisberg, thank you so much for coming on Shatter. Your book, Russia Upside Down, An Exit Strategy for the Second Cold War, is out now. People should go out and read it. They will learn a lot. And I'm really grateful for your time coming on and talking about it. Thanks, Shannon. Just love talking to you. Thank you. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. <laughs>